Hello everyone and welcome to Shot First Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and it's just me this week because Matt and Emily are both indisposed so what we're going to do is something slightly different this week. What you're going to hear is the audio from an episode of the Oxford Sparks Big Questions podcast which I appeared on last month in which I talked to the host of that podcast, Emily Elias, who very kindly had me on to talk about science in the movies, specifically examples of films throughout the history of of cinema that posited some sort of scientific idea and uh, then uh, then uh, Emily went and asked real scientists at the University of Oxford about how plausible for example the island gigantism in King Kong is or how likely it is that someone would be able to get away with the scheme that is used in both Office Space and Superman 3. It's a really fun discussion and I hope you all enjoy it. I'll be back afterwards just to do the usual recommends stuff. We've got a special guest from the Shot Reverse Shot podcast. It is Ed Davies. For those of you who haven't listened to us, Ed, can you please tell us what your podcast is about? Sure. It's a roundtable discussion show between me and my friends Matt Risby and Emily Benita, in which we talk about different themes and subjects related to film and television every week. So, for example, most recently, obviously, we've just had the Oscars, so we did a lot of stuff to do with award season. and But we will also do occasionally more focused things like talk about a, a new movie that's out or a older movie that's having some sort of significant anniversary. Like last year, we talked a lot about Heather's which is a, a, a wonderful and strange movie that we're all big fans of. Okay, so we asked you actually to come up with some questions about some famous films. Where do you want to start on this journey of science and film? Well, I think we should start with one of the really iconic movies in the kind of broad genre, I guess, of, of pseudoscience movies, a movie that has kind of has a, a, its foot in the in the realm of possibly plausible, but uh, is not really that plausible, which is King Kong. And for people who haven't seen it, brief synopsis? Sure. So uh, it's a movie set in 1933 in which a overly ambitious movie producer coerces his cast and hires a ship to travel to the mysterious island of uh, the mysterious Skull Island, where they encounter Kong, a giant ape who is then immediately smitten with leading lady Anne Darrow. But your question isn't about the love of between an ape and an actress, is it? Oh, no. You wanted to know something very specific. Yes. Uh, I wanted to know how extreme can island gigantism get? I didn't know island gigantism was like a thing. But hey, mm. it's fascinating that it is. And would you believe there is an expert at the University of Oxford who is like, no big deal. I got <laughs> the answer to this. Uh, his name is Tim Coulson. He's a professor of biology. And he looks at what happens when you add and remove predators from systems. So here's what Tim had to say. The film is complete fantasy. There are no islands where we are going to find a um, an ape of that size. But interestingly, some animals do get larger on islands, whilst others actually get smaller. So there's something that's called the island rule in uh, biology. And the island rule says 
that small mammals and birds tend to get larger in size, up to about a kilogram, that is, whilst larger animals, things like deer and uh, larger birds like emus, when they arrive on islands over evolutionary time, so this can take uh, you know, tens or hundreds or even millions of years, they actually shrink in size. Really? Really. So, in fact, if you go and you look at the islands or in the fossil records of islands in the Mediterranean, you will find uh, elephants that stood three feet high, you will find uh, small hippos, and you will find shrunken deer, so deer that are significantly smaller than their relatives on the mainland. Whilst if you look at the small mammals like rodents, uh, you will find that the mice on islands can be significantly larger than those on the mainland. Is there any explanation for this? So there, there is a, um, some explanations. And what happens when animals arrive on islands, they'll often escape predators, um, but also competitors. And what happens is their numbers increase. And as their numbers increase, they start competing for food more. And depending on the type of food that they feed on, that may be one of the things that drives them to larger size or drives them to smaller size. So for example, little passerine birds, so songbirds, when they arrive on islands, they tend to get larger. And the reason that they get larger is they go to high density and they start to fight a lot more over access to territories. So much so that they can, some species, actually kill themselves, kill one another. And as they, uh, there's pressure to be large and more aggressive because that means you'll be more likely to get a territory. And because they are fighting over something they can defend, being large and being strong and being aggressive is selected for. In contrast, a large animal like a deer or an elephant doesn't defend a territory in the same way. And that's because the food that they eat is scattered all around the island, while the passerine birds might be defending individual trees with various uh, um, uh, fruits or um, insects that live there. Isn't that crazy? So a larger animal would get smaller and a smaller animal get larger. So if that theory holds up, King Kong would actually be teeny tiny. Tim Coulson also wanted to point out that there's like a massive problem with the island itself. If this was to work the other way around and King Kong would become like this big, massive primate, the island itself would need to be huge in order for it to work. Now, one of the things I should say about King Kong is islands are often small in size. And one of the things that happens uh, when an island is, is quite small, if large animals arrive there, they'll be more likely to go extinct um, because the island can hold a relatively small population size of them. So something like King Kong, he was apparently the last of his family, if you believe the films, but uh, in order to have a population of a very, very large animal, you need a very, very large area. So uh, the idea of King Kong is completely and utterly implausible, to be perfectly honest. Wow, that is very thorough debunking of, uh, of King Kong. Although I, I think the... Um the more accurate version of going to one where there'd just be tiny King Kong sounds actually like it'd be much more adorable <laughs> if we were to get a more scientifically accurate version of King Kong. It's like that thing, like, do you want to fight, like, 10,000 small ducks <laughs> or one really, really big duck? If you had, like, 10,000 small little King Kongs, I think that would make a great film. <laughs> okay, <laughs> next on the watch list, you asked me to see Pie. Ed, what is this film about? So Pi is a movie by Darren Aronofsky about a numbers whiz named Max Cohen who 
Uh, is stunted by psychological delusions of paranoia and debilitating headaches. He lives in a messy Chinatown apartment waiting because with equations and his homemade super advanced computer. One day, however, Cohen encounters a mysterious number. Soon after reporting his discovery to his mentor and to a religious friend, he finds himself the target of ill-intentioned Wall Street agents bent on using the number for profit. So essentially as a, as a way of trying to make sense of the messiness of global financial markets. Oh, this film is so hard to watch for me. <laughs> yeah, I haven't I haven't watched it in quite a while. I remember it being pretty aggressively and impre- <laughs> pretty aggressively unpleasant. Yeah, it's like it's super art house, like extreme close ups mm-hmm. and like black and white. And oh, the plot was like only six actors that were I didn't I wasn't into it. Hey, <laughs> but you had a question. And so we had to find you the answer. And your question was how easy would it be to predict the stock market as seen in Pi? So I tracked somebody down who actually studies this sort of thing. I'm Steve Roberts, and I'm Professor of Machine Learning here in the University of Oxford. One of my big interests is in how we can make smart algorithms, and one of the applications I work on is running smart algorithms on financial data. Okay, so Steve, he's watched Pi, and I asked him, how accurate is it that you could you know, predict the stock market? Is there an ounce of truth to this? And here's what he had to say. The truth is bent in order to make a good plot. I wish financial markets were uh, possible to forecast. Unfortunately, they're not. There are certain uh, things that can't be predicted. Um, Knowing exactly what the nature of prices going up or down is extraordinarily difficult to predict. But some things that uh, you can do will be to actually, there's a bit more predictability about the range of those price swings. In finance, that's referred to generally as the volatility of a price. Volatility is something that is more forecastable. It's kind of like the swing of the prices up and down. How much is that range going to be? And people can actually make money by putting orders in um, into the market, hedging their bets about the range which a price is going to move up and down. But to all intents and purposes, heavily traded uh, assets in finance uh, tick up and down in their prices in a pretty much random way. So Steve says there are indicators that you can look at. For example, say you got a country that's got a lot of oil and all of a sudden you got a coup. Well, the price of oil is going to be affected, mm-hmm. right? That's pretty logical. Yeah. Uh, clearly, banks and investors have put tons of money into artificial intelligence to help figure out the volatility swings and looking for indicators. But Steve says, if you had somebody like Max, who was able to predict the whole stock market, it would actually tank the entire global economy. So these sort of notions of extreme information, um, this sort of uh, prescient savant who knows exactly what's going to happen, actually is a destabilizer into financial markets. Financial markets have what's known, though it's not perfectly true, this sort of idea of what's called an efficient market hypothesis, that there's uh, enough people who who believe that something's going to go up in price, so they want to buy it. And there are enough people who believe that actually the right thing to do is to sell it right now. And without a seller, you can't have a buyer. So this is a give and take. And if you only give or you only take, the whole thing collapses. So Max would destroy everything. I kind of feel like I'd like to see that part of the movie. The movie doesn't get that far, if I remember correctly. I think it'd be interesting to see a movie that follows the aftermath of something like that. 
Yeah, if he started the movie at the end, it would be way more entertaining. Yeah, undoubtedly. Okay, so we've got another question to unpack about science, and this one comes from 2004's Eternal Sunshine on the Spotless Mind. This is a film where Kate Winslet and Jim Carrey play a couple who date, break up, erase each other from their memories, and then re-meet and start again. So your question on this was... How feasible would it be to selectively erase memories as seen in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? This is one of my favorite answers. So Michelle Veldman, she studies stroke and dementia and how those diseases affect the brain. Her answer is actually incredible. It is, with the caveat, and I think we've already done it, with the caveat that it's in mice. So we can selectively erase memories, which in mice is already a big step because it's quite a difficult thing to do. If you think conceptually, it's not really, memories aren't really sort of one physical thing that's stored in one place that you could just sort of zap away. And they tend to be stored, distributed across the brain and across different cells. So it's quite hard to um, just selectively edit them out. But how do you know that you, that they've done it in mice? Can you walk me through this? Yeah, okay, good question. The way that it's been done uh, back in 2012, I think, um, was to use optogenetics. Um, so this is when you basically insert a light-sensitive protein called channel rhodopsin into um, the cells that are activated when a specific memory is recalled. So you put some mice into a box that's like a sort of environment. The mouse creates this memory trace of being in this box. Um, then they take the mouse, put it into another box and um, reactivate this memory of the first box that they were in. At the same time, they shock the mouse. So now the mouse has this new memory that it's formed of having a, um, a shock associated with that first box. Then you put the mouse back into that first box where it would never shock before. And it now has this fear response. It kind of retreats and it really um, is remembering this kind of fear associated with being in the box, even though it was never shocked in that box to begin with. So that's how we know that we can kind of manipulate the memories, specific memories, because it's, you know, specifically this memory of being in this box that's been manipulated. So Michelle says you can't do optogenetics in humans yet or like remove a whole person because say like you wanted to remove your mom. You have so many different parts of your brain that you need to figure out what would need to be erased. And then you would also be erasing like all of the things that she ever taught you, which might not be so great. Like mm. my mom's taught me a lot of things. Um, but there are people who are investigating whether or not you can erase like, traumatic memories, for example, being in a war. So I think there'll be a lot of ethical issues that arise as we try to figure out how we could do this. But I guess the, the thinking of being able to do this sort of thing is that there are those really negative memories that... Um, you see when people have, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, and these are really the kind of more pathological memories that we want to get rid of, or at least remove the association. So if you keep, if they keep coming to mind and creating all these other issues, emotional reactions, you know, panic um, disorders, things like that, then you would want to find ways to remove those specific memories. But yeah, it'll bring up a whole load of ethical issues, I think, but we're probably away, away from that just yet. Absolutely fascinating. I'd never really considered the, I don't want to say practical application, but, you know, the, the therapeutic, I guess, practical uh, application of using it to yeah, help people cope with really traumatic memories that had, are, are negatively impacting their life. Yeah, I mean, like, I think with science fiction, we can kind of get tossed up in the like the glamour and the storyline of it. But like, if you could erase a specific, like, horrific memory, that could potentially change somebody's life for forever. Mm. And then, but yeah, as, as as 
as was just said there, the ethics of that then become incredibly murky and complicated because so much of memory is kind of tied into the notion of identity. And if you remove an early traumatic memory from someone, theoretically, you're changing who they are as a person. That's that's a, that's a lot to think about, I guess. It's really heavy stuff. Is there a memory that you would want to have removed, if you could? If this existed in humans, we're, you know, a few years away from that still, but... Uh, I could probably think of... Uh, yeah, I just as a, a, a silly one, I remember going on a school trip as a, a very young kid and just... It was in the Cotswolds and it was incredibly muddy and I remember just falling over and getting covered in mud and having to trudge around. This was very early on in the trip as well, so I had to trudge around for like four or five hours just covered in mud with mud in my shoes and it was just uh, very, very unpleasant. I think I could probably get away with removing that memory. And that wouldn't change you fundamentally as a human being. <laughs> yeah, no, I know not too much of my identity is tied up in that, I don't think. <laughs> I've saved the best for last, Ed. Your last question is one of my favorites. Mm. Hit me with it. Sure. Could a Superman 3 slash office space thing happen where you can steal pennies of big transactions and by doing that become millionaires? Yeah, and the company is like none the wiser to your sneaky, sneaky scams. Mm -hmm. I caught up with this woman named Claudine Tinsman, who studies cybersecurity at the University of Oxford. And I asked her, is this possible? And she said it's based on a historical scam. So the idea is it's a practice that's called salami slicing or uh, coin clipping. It used to come from when uh, you had physical coins that were made out of gold or silver. People would shave little bits of the metal off and then amass a huge pile of it and remelt their own currency. And that's where the, the idea comes from. And it's the same kind of principle. But the idea in Office Space and in Superman 3 is that there are these fractions of cents that are left, that are left around floating in these various accounts that are being unused. Um, and that uh, whenever checks are cashed out or you know, issued to employees, uh, that those little extra fractions are just left off and that the values are truncated. That doesn't really happen. Um, and the reason is that we operate in with transactions that have whole cent values. We don't have the ability to have half cents or fractions of cents. So what banks do, or financial institutions do when there are fractional values, is that they'll either round up or round down. And they don't just truncate it in their, in their favor. So sometimes you come out a little bit ahead and sometimes a little bit behind on each individual transaction. But over the course of millions and millions of transactions, statistically speaking, everything evens out and you end up the bank ends up more or less with just a zero balance in terms of the remainders within a slight margin of error. And there are very strict regulations about what they can do if they have any of the any leftover cash from those from those transactions. And if their remainder or their lack of a remainder falls outside of the margin of error that they're used to having or that they should normally have based on historical data, that'll raise red flags. And uh, it'll trigger uh, an audit or a review from within the, the bank. So that particular tactic wouldn't necessarily work. But these films, they took place in like a different time of banking. Mm. You know what I mean? Like it didn't like we had our comp our pocket computers or AKA telephones in our hands that we could instantly see what our bank balance was. So I asked her like, could this have been like plausible in the context of the movie in that time? Like, could it have worked? Theoretically, you might have been able to get away with it in uh, in the 70s and in the 80s, just because a lot more of the transactions were manual. But 
what's much more common and what does still happen today is not skimming off fractions of cents, but actual like whole cents, one or two cents on specific transactions. There was a couple of years ago, I think it was E-Trade, there was an E-Trade uh, scam a couple of years ago where somebody opened thousands of accounts under fake names, all based off of cartoon characters. I think some of the names were actually from Office Space as well. And the reason he was able to do that was because of a loophole in terms of the criteria for immediate verification of identity when you were opening an account. So he would open these accounts and he would link his bank account to his brokerage account. And E-Trade, in order to verify that linking had been done properly, would issue these small amounts of money of a couple of cents to his account and say, hey, did the transaction go through? And then before the verification process could go forward, he immediately cashed out those cents. And over the course of thousands and thousands of accounts, I think he amassed something like $60,000. He was finally uh, caught actually because of a stipulation of the Patriot Act that uh, required financial corporations to verify the identity of everyone opening their accounts. So they didn't catch him right away, but they caught him a couple of months later. I think this went on for about six months. That is absolutely incredible. <laughs> and uh, I have to admire the, uh, the chutzpah of <laughs> of including names of characters from Office Space in your Office Space style scout. <laughs> That's quite impressive. I'm not like awesome with computers, but I feel like he kind of earned it. Like <laughs> to set up that many email accounts to siphon off 60 grand is a phenomenal amount of work. Yeah, that feels like at least 60 grand's worth of work being put in there. Like if he was at a high paying job where someone asked him to do that, I'd feel that would be uh, worthwhile recompense. Yeah, so definitely bonkers and totally illegal. So kids, <laughs> don't think you can pull an office space style scam at home. It just won't work. How did you, Ed? Did I answer all of your questions? Yeah, absolutely. Although now I do have to wonder, you know, in terms of Superman 3, if there's any basis to the part in the movie where they push a woman into a computer and she turns into a horrifying robot. Because that certainly raises a lot of questions. Oh, you should have been more specific. I could have asked somebody that. <laughs> Next time. Next time. And thanks again to Emily Elias for having me on the Oxford Sparks Big Questions podcast. It was huge fun. And that show is uh, really wonderful, really insightful and entertaining and educational. I think everyone should check it out if you haven't already. So we end this week's episode, as we end all episodes, with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you listeners will enjoy as well. I'm using we there because when I originally tried to record this and I said I, it sounded incredibly egotistical. So I'm going to use the royal we to uh, also account for Emily and Matt, who, uh, who aren't here at the moment. And I'm going to recommend a video game from 2017 called Near Automata, which I've been playing a lot of recently. Uh, it was a game that I remember getting just like huge uh, plaudits when it came out in 2017 and uh, I picked it up just before Christmas in a sale and you know kind of played it a little bit and liked it but didn't really kind of get too into it left it on the shelf for a bit and then uh, a guy at my work who I knew was a huge fan of Nier Automata basically every time I saw him for for a couple of months would be like hey have you finished that game yet have you finished that game yet and I was like I should probably finish this game <laughs> uh, just to have something to talk about really but uh, I'm really glad I did because it is a hugely uh, entertaining and engrossing and funny and strange and weird and disturbing game in which you play as a android who is sent down to earth to kind of do battle with all of these machines on behalf of a kind of a shadowy 
organization of humans, the idea being that it takes place in the far future in which humanity has left Earth and they, uh, Earth has been overrun by machines. And on one, on one level, it's just kind of like a fun JRPG in which you're going around beating up robots with giant swords, which is always fun. On another level, it's this kind of really darkly funny game in which you're encountering all these machines who are trying to reconstruct human society and not quite getting it you know they are like robots who who know that Romeo and Juliet is a thing but maybe don't understand what the point of Romeo and Juliet is and so they will uh, stage a, 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 a an interpretation of William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet that uh, is somewhat different from uh, what we're all familiar with and it's kind of this real uh, interesting meditation on existential angst and the the nature of consciousness and what it means to be human in which you are also going around with the big sword attacking robots and i've i found it to be just a hugely rewarding experience particularly because it's a game that demands to be completed multiple times because you play through different characters and each time you get a different bit of the lore of the world and you get a little bit more of the backstory about what's happening and, and really you don't get the full picture until you've played it played through it a couple of times and seen all these different endings and and it also it's a game that uh, somewhat infamous, infamously has about 26 different endings but like only five of them are like really big and important the other ones are things like you eat a fish and the oil from it corrupts your services sir, <laughs> corrupts your circuits and you die that's that's kind of the the level of humour that the game is working on is that very, very occasionally it will just do kind of like weird, strange things. And yes, so that is a game that's available. I think it's on the PC, but it's definitely on the PS4, which is what I've been playing it on. And uh, I, I highly recommend it if you are into kind of slightly janky games in which you, again, fight robots with a giant sword and engage in conversations with people, uh, with, with robots who are constantly questioning the very nature of existence. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, which obviously is a little off model, but uh, sure, if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Acast, Spotify, all the usual places. Leave us a review, rate us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow. And you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, and presumably more than just me. But until then, uh, it's goodbye from me, and goodbye from the others. Bye.